Man, it's good to be with you guys this morning in the Lord's house. We are going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. We're going to talk about an increase or increasing, growing up in virtue. And virtue is a word that gets used a lot, but not defined well. And my first question before we even read the text and begin is, would other people say of you that you are a virtuous person? And today in the text, in just two verses, verses 8 and 9, Peter is going to uh, describe five virtues that Christians should have, applying to the church in that day, applying to us as Christians today in the church, five virtues that we should be growing in as we progress in our Christian lives. And so we'll begin by reading the text in verses 8 and 9 of First Peter chapter 3. And uh, at least in the text that I'm using, we, uh, there's a title, a subtitle, that's called Turning from Evil. All right, everything's in context in Scripture. It's not always chronological, but it's always in context. And last week we looked at submitting to authority, and Peter used the idea of a husband and wife, marriage relationship, and how we submit to authority properly. And this week he's turning to how we increase in virtue even more than just submission to authority. And this is uh, across the board. This is a horizontal relationship that we should be having with fellow believers and with our fellow human beings. And so Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded. That is to have unity of mind. And that is a big ask. It's easy to read that, but we do not do that very well. He says, And be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. And stay humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead repay evil with blessing. That's pretty easy to do, right? Because to this you were called so that you may obtain or inherit God's blessings. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that collectively, that the Holy Spirit who is here, you are here, you're here in our midst, God, that the Holy Spirit would touch every single heart, every single life, that you would renew our minds this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to fall out of the rhythm of conformity with this world and instead be transformed. Lord, that you would touch us, convict us, draw us into your presence this morning, God. And Lord, if there are areas where we know we have not been living virtuously, that we would please repent, fall before you, call upon your grace, that you would be pleased with us, and, and Lord, encourage us this morning, because grace is such a beautiful thing, God, even if we've fallen short, even if we've made mistakes, even if we're not doing very well in our walk right now, your grace is sufficient. Your Holy Spirit's conviction draws us out of the mire and the muck and the darkness of life, up into the glory and the blessings and the holiness of your goodness. And Lord, everybody has hope that we will live better and do better and please you more with greater honor. And Lord, we just ask that you'd work today in us and do something fantastic, amazing, supernatural that we can look at and say only God could do that. 
and you've done it, and we'll give you all the glory and the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Peter was very plain spoken, all right? He was passionate. He's just encouraged us to increase in our submission, to be better at being humble, okay? And uh, it sounds like an oxymoron. You're growing in humility, uh, but we need to be, okay? And he follows it up with this great idea of practical application, and he gives us five lessons for the church for our health and our well-being. So what's the purpose? Peter's preaching this message to us today, and he's preaching it to those in the first century so that the church collectively, yes, it's individual Christians, but together, when we're assembled together, that we may be healthier, that we may be better. And he's going to tell us this very first one in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded, and that is to have unity of mind. And so the very first virtue is unity of mind. And there he says, be of one mind. In this simple verse, Peter's telling us that it's imperative for the health of the Christian church that its people be of one mind. And there's a lot of things that that doesn't mean. And and I want to spend more time on this particular point than the other four because it's a little bit deeper in what what it means. It does not mean that we all agree on everything or that we set aside our own perspectives and viewpoints and become some mindless herd. That's more descriptive of a cult than the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we all think the same, okay? Because there are some amongst us who are Oklahoma Sooner fans. There are some amongst us who are Arkansas Razorback fans. There are some of us in here who love cats. There are some who love dogs. There are lots of differences, and those are funny, superficial ones, but it gets deeper. There are some that we have uh, inadvertently caused strife amongst us because they believe differently politically than we do, and we say, I can't have fellowship with that person, or they may think that uh, differently about sexuality, or they may think differently about any number of ideas. And Peter is going to call us back to this idea that who we are in Christ and what we have shared together in Jesus is far more important than the petty earthly differences that we have. Amen? As we all come from different backgrounds, we bring different life experiences and worldviews. And what this means is that we have agreement on the substantial, the substantial matters of faith. We share one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. You know, if you want to see in a church just how uh, disagreeable and argumentative we can be, you have a business meeting. And we're having a small one after church today, believe it or not. Isn't that ironic? Uh, And it's just to share the financial updates from the first part of this year because our our business meetings have been kind of corrupted because of weather a lot of times. But uh, you want to have a business meeting. And you take something that seems as simple and mundane as choosing the color of carpet or as one church that I was at had an argument over what type of toilet paper we should be purchasing, and that's not a joke. 
Or dress code. Do we all wear suits and ties? Is it okay to wear shorts? What if somebody comes in and they're wearing a Metallica shirt? Man, God forgive them. You know, like we're not going to sit with them. Um, but we, we make these secondary and tertiary issues, primary issues, far too often. And Peter's saying, don't. Just don't. Peter's talking about the actual important things, the non-negotiables of the faith. And it's in those things that we need to be united in mind and in spirit. We have to have the same beliefs and missiology in reference to the work and the person of Jesus. Listen, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father, we have issues. If you can't preach that salvation or believe that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone, then we have issues. You know, we still have brothers and sisters who we will one day spend an eternity with who sprinkle little ones or who, or who don't believe in full immersion like we as Baptists do. That's not the primary issue. We have people who speak in tongues that, believe it or not, will be in heaven even though I believe, and as a general rule, most Baptists believe in the cessation of that particular spiritual gift that it was only for the apostolic age. And at the conclusion of Scripture, we didn't need that particular gift any longer to be able to share and edify with the Word of God. We have differences, and that's why there's so many denominations out there. But in heaven, under God, under Christ, we're all one. Jesus is Lord. In the midst of us, guys, we may say, you know, there's so many things that we carry with us from growing up, from stigmas. I remember that my dad adamantly would never buy a foreign vehicle. Okay, you got to think, my dad's a Marine from the Vietnam era. He was 32 years in the military. Um, he would never buy a foreign vehicle. It was always a Chevy or a Ford. Uh, why? Well, you look at his particular virtues and ideas. Today, we're rocking a Toyota. We, we love it, all right? Um, we all come from different mindsets, and we, we think the way we think, and we see the world through lenses the way we see it because of the way we were raised. But more than anything that's earthly, that's shaped how you see and perceive reality, what should be the lens, the corrective lens that we're putting on, is God's Word, you put it on, and you see everything else through it, and you see it right, okay? And so there's plenty of room for differences for all of us, guys. We, we know this in lesser matters. But I believe that far too often, not just First Lowell, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has majored in the minor issues, and it's showing itself to the world. Our pettiness has unfortunately become one of our defining traits as Christians, we must begin to understand and accept our similarities and our like-mindedness if we're to have unity. And guys, get this. We must have unity if we're to be a church that pleases the Lord. We must have unity. doesn't matter who you root for. doesn't matter your favorite color. It doesn't matter necessarily how you interpret one verse of Scripture versus another. It doesn't matter if you sing or if you don't like the songs. It doesn't matter if you uh, sit in worship or maybe you come to Sunday school or don't come to Sunday school. It doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you bring into church. The things that unite us ought to be held in higher regard than the things that divide us. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. And we need this. We need also 
to understand that the church is bigger than any single one of our personal preferences, our likes, or our traditions. We won't live very long as a local body if we keep making it about us instead, and if I keep making it about me instead of us. Guys, it's got to be more than just me personally. In the process of becoming a dying church, many will set a terrible witness for Christ in the communities which we, where they have been planted. So we understand that our purpose in life is not to agree with everyone and not to have everyone agree with us. Our purpose is not to be liked universally. And that's very difficult for us to grasp because we want to be people pleasers. There's so often that I want to please people. And sometimes when I'm not focused on Christ, I will put people ahead of Jesus and try to please people instead of my Lord. And it's dangerous. To be a Christian, I think this is on the screen and it's, it's pretty powerful. I, do, I don't even know if we got all the... Uh, I don't know, Miss Jennifer, and I, I did this to you by sending them late, but if you have the sixth slide, to be a Christian is to hold a worldview. Yeah. To be a Christian is to hold a worldview that's on a collision course with the thinking and the action of this world. You, child of God, should not be like-minded with the world. And that's an imperative the way we think should instead be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And I say should be. The way that we live out our virtues, the biblical values that we hold, should be what shapes us and frames us and molds us and sets our opinions and our beliefs. And again, it should be. To bring this collective Christian mind, guys, and a couple of hundred people, you're not going to get anybody to agree on anything that we vote on. But every one of us as a Christian in this church should agree on the biblical truths about Jesus. And those are far more important and more eternal than anything else that we could agree or disagree on. We have to be conformed to the mind of Christ when you're conformed to something, and this is, goes directly back to what Peter just talked about with the husbands and wives, it means we're submitting, we're humbling ourselves, we're subservient to something else, and we are subservient to the Word of God. It's for our whole life with our whole mind. It means you don't take vacations from being a Christian. You don't say, I'm going to take this week off and do whatever I want to. We should want to spend time with our Abba. We should in that time, be learning the character and the heart of God. And from that, the closer we are to Him, the more we begin to see things from His perspective. We begin to think and act like Christ the more time we spend with Him. And as we're shaped by this type of faith, the faith that's held in common with other believers, it becomes a hallmark of the church. I want more than anything else for people to hear the name First Baptist Lowell and not think of division. To not think of disunity. To not think of uh, a split people. I don't want them to think uh, liberal or conservative. As important as those things are in this world, I want them to think, man, that's a true church of Jesus. 
They believe God's word. They teach God's word. They sing true praises to God. Those people are together for Jesus. Wouldn't that be the greatest witness you could think hearing about this church? Well, how do you get that way? Well, it takes individual people spending more and more time and being more and more in the presence of Jesus. And then it takes those people assembling together and rubbing shoulders and rubbing elbows with one another and becoming more and more like Jesus together. And the more and more like Jesus we become as a whole, the more we'll be boiling and bubbling over to reach people for Jesus and to bring them into this inclusivity in Christ. We don't just insulate the walls of the church building. We spill out of it. The cup runs over. And Christians who love Jesus and love one another are pouring into the world. And others are going to come in contact with that. We hold this faith in common as believers. And that's the hallmark of a true church of God. We experience, we live, we do And we share this truth. We are a communion of saints marked by our like-mindedness in Jesus. Guys, together, we're stronger, wiser, and holier. We're just better together. A cord of three strands, I know it's often pulled out in wedding sermons, but two, strong. But a cord of three, wrapped together, bound up in Jesus Christ, is unbreakable. Can you even imagine if we had one collective mind, one collective spirit, and one collective mission, and we went out to do that in the name of Jesus, what this church could accomplish for the kingdom of God in this world? We are the body of Christ meaning that he is in this body. He is of the essence. We are of the essence of him, and it should show. You know, most churches that split and disband don't even do so over some important theological rift. They do split and disband over personal preferences and personal differences because pride has gotten in the way. Stuff like whether we should name a building after a deceased saint. Stuff like security systems, heat and air systems, which version of the Bible is preferred. Whether or not we have signs up to mark different buildings, different little things and people look for. And as the world has made the church more seeker sensitive, which is not a word I like, but we have bent over backwards to please people to get them into the church. But the, 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 the opposite of that is the truth in this. We should have of a like mind that we're bending over backwards to make sure God is glorified and honored in our midst. And it's hard. I'm not saying this is easy, but this is Peter's message. So the first point, the first virtue that Peter was using here was that we're to have unity of mind. The second is compassion for one another. Some translations will read having sympathy for one another. And the idea isn't feeling sorry for somebody, but sharing common feelings. I want to have compassion. We're called to feel a brother or a sister's pain and their joy. As Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When's the last time somebody, something good happened in their life? 
something powerful and positive, and you just rejoiced with them. No ulterior motives. You weren't jealous or envious of what they had, but you were just so thankful and happy for them, and you praised God. And when's the last time somebody was hurting or they were sick or they were down and out and you just felt it in your spirit and you were broken for them to the point of crying out and interceding on their behalf? That's the idea of compassion. To have sympathy or compassion comes from this word pathos and it means shared passion, calm passion. It's like when someone comes to you and they fall on your shoulder They just literally fall on you and they're weeping and they ask you to pray for someone that they love that's suffering and you feel that and it burdens you, not a bad burden, but a good burden so that you have to continue to intercede fervently for them. You can't let it go. God will wake you up at night and say, man, pray for them right now. Their passion towards you, the, 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 the emotion with which they came to you, the real reality of their need is burdening you to compassionately lift them up to the Father. And we do that. This is important too, okay? I'm going to turn to a couple of these because this is a primary point. You hurt for them. Yeah, man, uh, did you hear that uh, that family down the road, uh, their house burned up and they lost everything? Man, that stinks. I hate that for them. Yeah, you hurt for them. In the mind, you're having uh, these compassionate thoughts about them, but it goes beyond that to you hurt with them. As you've got the shovel and you're out there scooping up what used to be their closet and throwing it in a trash can. And you're scooping up what used to be their children's bed and you're throwing it in a closet. You're hurting with them. You're demonstrating the compassionate, sacrificial love of Jesus. When God answers their their prayers, you not only rejoice for them, that's good, I'm glad that happened for them, but you rejoice with them and tell them, man, Miss Dale, I'm so thankful that the Lord did that. That blesses my heart. Good news is a blessing, and blessings are meant to be shared. And so we do that with one another. And so we ought to be sharing one another's passions. And passions for godly biblical virtues are contagious. When somebody else is excited for Jesus, another person gets excited for Jesus. You see this at a a ball game. You go to a, a Razorback basketball game, and you're sitting down, everybody's sitting down, and one person jumps up and starts hollering, Defense! Come on, defense! The person beside them, for fear of either not being able to see because the person in front of them just stood up too, or because they'll look like they're not really rooting for the fans, will jump up and say, let's go, hogs! Come on, defense right here, boys! Come on, Note! Amen. Amen. See, that made him excited. All right? We get excited at other stuff. But, man, we should be even more excited when God's working in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Jesus. If one of us has great feelings of worship, we should share that with one another. If God's broken us, we share the testimony with a like-minded believer. If God's answered a specific prayer, we ought to share the testimony of praise with other believers. What it does is it incites us to greater faith. It excites us in our hearts and our spirits that they're being blessed. The third virtue that Peter's speaking of here in verse 8 is he says, love as brothers. Now, there's no exclusion here. You know that it means as brothers and sisters in Christ. But biblical love is many-faceted. You know, I remember 
when I was saving up to buy a diamond for Jennifer for engagement ring. I remember, you know, they talked to you about the cut, the color, the carrot, and the, the clarity, right? And they'll, they'll take this diamond and they'll put it under a special light and they'll put it on this pure silk backdrop and they'll hold it and say, look at that. You like how that gleans? That's an extra $3,000 right there, okay? Oh, you want a royal ash? Oh, she likes oval cut. Let me show you these. And, you know, and there's facets and cuts on these diamonds that make them even more brilliant, that sparkle even greater. And God's love is many-faceted, multifaceted. Man, when you hold it in different lights or even under storm clouds and in darkness, we still shine the brilliance of Jesus just in different ways. And so brotherly love is this. God's love transcends the world's love. The world's love is mostly about lust, and it's personal and selfish, but not God's love. God's love's bigger, it's deeper, it's wider, it's more potent, and it's longer-lasting. And the call in the New Testament especially is to love the brethren. It's a recurring command, not just an ask. God's not politely asking us or nudging us to do it. He's commanding us to love other brothers and sisters. And the Bible is full of language about uh, the family being the core building block of all else. The family is the core building block of society. The church family is the core building block of the kingdom of God on earth. And so the church is a family. God's our father. We're his adopted children. And brothers and sisters who are tied together by Christ are all amongst us. We should love one another if for no other reason than we share the same father. Lynn, your, your father God is my father God. Terry, your father God is my father God. Louis, your father God is my father God. And there's deep roots in that. There's a shared bloodline. And man, we fight for blood. My family, when I think about Jennifer and Sperry and Declan, when I even think about uh, Wayne and Shirley and Kyle, my, my parents and my brother, when I think about my grandparents and my cousins and just that biological family, I think about refuge. Man, I get to go home. I was gone all week this past week uh, to a spiritual intensive. It wasn't just a retreat. We didn't lay around. We were up supposed to be at 545 in the, in the sanctuary. Uh, the monks were singing praises. Yeah, we were at a Catholic uh, abbey. Um, all day, I mean, 9, 9.15 at night, we weren't to have our phones. We were supposed to, two nights from 9 o'clock p.m. until uh, 7.45 when we met together again, we were supposed to be quiet. We took a vow of silence. Do you know how hard that is for me? My wife said, you're going to fail. <laughs> I was talking to myself a lot because I didn't have anybody else to talk to. But I also talked a lot to God. But that whole week I was in a room that the conditions could be at best described as Spartan. Uh, I forgot to take shampoo and body wash. And so they've got those tiny little bars of soap. And uh, I forgot how awful those things are because the first time you start rubbing them together, they break in two. But I had to wash my whole big body and my hair with those little things. When I got back home, oh, my bed, my spot on the couch, my babies, my wife's cooking, my shower, you know, my pillow, my stuff. I mean, it was this place, this haven, and that's what home is. But 
home is only home because of the family that lives there. If I didn't have anybody that I loved there with me, it would just be a dwelling place. Family is so important. The loyalty and the steadfastness and the love of my wife, those little boys, the joy of being with them, the refuge we find together, it's a microcosm of how the church should be as the family of God. You shouldn't dread coming here because you're going to see somebody. You should look forward to being here because you're going to get to see somebody and you're going to get to be with them and you're going to get to be with Jesus and his spirit. And it should be a place where when you come into the church, you feel at home as a family of believers. If you've experienced family loyalty, I think you get what Peter's saying here. And we don't always agree. Mm. We don't always agree, do we, Jennifer? You don't always agree. You don't always agree with me. Deacons don't all always agree. The budget committee doesn't all always agree. Finance committee doesn't always always agree. You don't always agree with your spouse. Your kids don't always agree with you. Well, we have lots of differences. And those differences are really what make us a little bit unique. All of us bicker and banter at times with one another. We get our feelings hurt. And make no mistake that you do your own fair share of hurting people's feelings too. But family is family. My brother Kyle will always be my brother biologically. My dad used to say to us all the time when we were fighting, because we, we fought like brothers do, he said, that's the only brother you're ever going to have. And I was like, yeah, we might adopt one, right? Being a smart aleck, you know. I used to tell my brother when he was real little that we had a, I had a little brother before him, and he didn't act right, so they sent him away, you know. <laughs> I'm a mean person. Uh, but I tell you what, man, I would die in a heartbeat for my brother. I would lay down my life if I were able to before you could even have to draw a breath for my wife or one of my little boys. Family. Man, when those bonds of family become that strong, and guys, God is saying that in Jesus, the bonds can become that strong amongst people who share faith in Jesus. Brian will always be my brother in Christ, and nothing can ever change that. Satan can't cross that bloodline. Nothing will ever change it. And so Peter's calling us to love one another in, fellowship, in the fellowship of Christ like we're family because we are. When you think about coming to church, don't think about coming here to this building. Think about coming home to family to worship your Father together. And what a glorious reunion that thought is. The fourth virtue that Peter teaches is tenderheartedness. And a lot of guys will buck and bristle at this one and say, I ain't going to be tenderhearted. Well, you are. Was Jesus not meek and mild? Was Jesus not lowly in heart and in spirit? And when we think about meekness, we think about this great strength that's held under control so that when somebody offends you, your first thought isn't to strike blows with them. It's to contain and think and act in the proper way. It's not reactionary. It's premeditated strength to not do what your flesh is telling you to do, but to do it in a way which is godly so that if a brother strikes you of the cheek, you turn the other cheek. If they want your, your jacket, you give them your 
cloak or your coat as well. Tenderheartedness. The King James renders it to be pitiful. Pitiful is the word there, but full of pity. And among us as believers, there should be a shared tenderness. It's the opposite of roughness. To be tender goes beyond just a physical touch, like you're gently patting somebody on the back. That's important. Physical touch matters. But it's this visceral, pulsating, deep-rooted heart that truly cares it courses through my veins to, be, to want to care about somebody else. Yeah, we're kind to one another. That means we're not hard-hearted or mean or thoughtless. And our kindness, this is really the word here, translates into care and concern. It moves us to sacrificial love, being willing to actually act on the love that you think and feel to go do it so that we are living out of Christ-like action. Peter's clear, and I'm sure you get this idea, but it's not a hard, a harsh, a recalcitrant, or a cruel heart. It's the opposite of those things. It's gentle, it's soft, and it's tender. You ever held a baby? Man, I remember the first time my, before Jennifer and I ever had kids, I remember holding friends' babies. And I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Give me the baby, you know, like what do I do here? But you're so gentle with the baby. You're, you're taking it and you're cradling it and you're not holding it by its feet upside down. And, you know, you've got this baby and you're just so gentle with it. And the idea here is that we are all going through very difficult battles, most of which nobody on the outside of our hearts knows about. And isn't it better when somebody approaches you with gentleness and tenderness and authenticity and compassion and grace and you feel that and we are to reciprocate that because we don't know what somebody's going through in a given day. <clears throat> it's not a natural behavior, guys, to be tenderhearted. The type of heart that I'm speaking of can only exist through the inworking of the Holy Spirit. It, it is available to redeemed men and women. It's for the forgiven who have experienced for themselves firsthand the supernatural grace of God. And because we've experienced it and we don't forget what it felt like, we offer that to someone else that's in need of it desperately. Fifth and final virtue is courteousness. Um, the word courtesy, I think this is important. I was doing a little word study here, and it comes from, it came into common usage in England uh, during the Elizabethan period, and it was derived from two words, the words court and etiquette. We're thinking about the king and the queen, the royal court. Court etiquette is what it literally means, and it shortened, they shortened the word to courtesy, courtesy. It's the honor and respect to be given to the royal family. It's the principles to be practiced in court. Honor and respect are its ideals. So you think about a princess. When they're out and about, the queen will remind her daughter, act like a princess, which means straighten up. Act right. And guys, if you think about it, the Bible calls us the children of God and a royal priesthood amongst many other names that it gives to us. But we are born again of the king of kings, which makes us 
inherit, in, in, able to inherit, I should say, this royalty. There's royal blood that's been shed and poured out for us to be redeemed. What if you acted like a prince of God or a princess of God, a son of Christ or a daughter of Christ? And this idea will spill out of you when you begin acting that way. Honor and respect. You know, I think that etiquette has pretty much gone out the door, out the window. It's gone by the wayside in our culture today. It's less and less practiced and less and less common. But Christians are still called to grow in it. Christians are still called to practice it. We're still called to teach it to our children, and we should be doing that. It's not just Southern courtesy to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir. It's more than that. You're showing respect, courtesy, and honor. And so this means to be courteous and respectful towards others, especially those of the household of faith. This is the the last slide that I have. Um, This principle of honor and respect. You respect people's dignity. Um, It's really hard for us to do. My Facebook feed is filled up with, and I've done this before too, with... um, pictures of people that we dislike, making fun of their appearance or calling them names, especially politicians or Olympic athletes. And guys, that doesn't do anybody any good. In no way does that edify other people. You might get them to agree with you and they like your picture or put a heart by your picture or a thumbs up by your picture on social media, but what's that really doing other than winning people to your idea? The idea is not to have our own ideas, and to elicit support and response from them, but to live out the ideas and the ideals of God, whereas if you post something about Jesus, you may not get as many likes. But if you post an ugly picture of Nancy Pelosi, 150 people will like it. Or if you put something about Trump or about Biden, and I'm just saying those because those are the hot-button issues, You put something about Vladimir Putin. You're expecting to get a response because you're getting people to agree with you and how you feel. But if you put your faith in Jesus out there, which is hard to do, but not many people will like it. (laughs) Truth isn't based on the approval of others. You live the truth. And if it's not edifying, if it's not courteous, if it's not tender-hearted, if it doesn't promote unity amongst the brethren, if it's not these other things that we said, like compassionate or brotherly in love, why, why bother with it? We don't need to grow in more junk in the world. We need to grow in Christ-likeness. We're to esteem our fellow believers higher than we esteem even our own selves for Christ's sake. Listen, friends, um, as much as you'd like to hear this said, we're not an ideal church. We have room, much room for improvement, much room for unity, much room for growth, for grace, for compassion, for love. And yet the ideal church 
is one that lives out these virtues. And that's why Peter's saying, you have not yet attained them, but be attaining them as you grow in Christ. We ought to be growing and increasing in them, for these are the values and the virtues that God loves and the ones that he honors. The last little verse there, I, I don't want to just jump over it and not act like it's important, but look at verse 9. I'm not going to go into it, but I just want to read it because I think you can uh, apply that scripture for yourself. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Guys, when we're practicing these other virtues, we don't have to stoop. You know, that's one thing I was always taught growing up. You don't need to stoop down to that level. Somebody is, uh, is already down here. Man, it does us no good, and it brings no glory to God to stoop down to their level and repay them with the evil that they, repay, they paid us with. You look at Joseph. If he had repaid his brothers when they came begging, starving for grain, if he had repaid them the way that they paid him and treated him, Israel would not have continued as a nation. If each of us repaid one another, repaid the world for the ways that they've treated us, we would not be a church. We would be another club or organization. And we might as well move the pews and put up dartboards and pool tables and just come in here and hang out. We are called to higher virtues, and we're to be growing in those. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray today that every one of us are a little convicted. I pray that I am. I pray that each soul here is. First of all, to be able to live out these virtues that the Spirit works out in us, we have to be saved. We have to be born again, born from above. We have to trust Jesus by faith for salvation. We have to surrender and submit and humble ourselves before Him and to cry out. And the Bible's words are very clear. God, Your words are clear to us. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father, we pray today that first off that people are being saved. That if there's a soul in here today that's been embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that they're not, they don't like going in front of people, that they would have that obstacle overcome and you would knock that Jericho wall down and let them to march over it straightway as on flat ground and to come and make that profession of faith. We'll rejoice angels in heaven will rejoice. Father, if we don't have a unity of mind amongst us, it starts by being united in mind to Jesus. It starts in our own homes, and it carries over and spills over into Sunday school classrooms and small groups, pews in which we sit, the congregation and the assembly of believers. Father, we ask that you would make us compassionate people, tender-hearted, growing in grace. And Lord, if we don't exhibit those qualities today, and Lord, I'm asking for you to take a hard look at us. Let the Spirit search us and know us. That you would bring us to repentance where I say, I'm sorry, God. I haven't been living like that. 
I haven't been doing those things, but with your help and empowerment, I'm going to start doing so today. We don't get these things perfectly in one sitting. We grow in them. Hence the purpose of this year's theme, to increase. Let us increase in one little thing at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time, one decade at a time. And it may be a slow-growing forest, but one day we're going to be to walk in the shadow and the shade of the beautiful, glorious branches that reach out that have been planted and continue to grow in your grace. Help us today. Call us today. Work in us today. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.